You know, when you think of a European vacation, you envision yourself floating through the canals of Venice, or perhaps strolling the halls of a London museum, or maybe sipping coffee at a Paris cafe. But when Paul arrived in Europe, he had but one thought on his mind, and that was to lead the lost masses to faith in Jesus. At the time, Europe was drowning in a sea of idolatry and paganism. Acts chapter 10, remember, saw a huge breakthrough. Peter was in Joppa when he saw a vision from God. It resulted in the gospel being preached directly to the Gentiles. But another breakthrough occurred in Acts chapter 16. Paul is in Troas, and he too sees a vision from God. A man from Macedonia, an Eastern European, he calls for Paul's help. Paul sails the Aegean Sea, and the gospel moves from Asia now to Europe. Remember, the first Christians were Asians and Africans, but now Europeans joined the family of God. And for over, all oh, the next 1,800 years, Europe will be the hub of Christian activity. For a 1,000 years, Rome will be its headquarters until the seeds of Reformation begin to sprout up all over Europe. And then, in the 19th century, England will give birth to the modern missionary movement, spreading the gospel even to the New World. But it all began in 50 AD when Paul blazed the trail onto European soil to bring the gospel. In Acts chapter 16, Paul goes to Europe, to Philippi. Now in Acts chapter 17, he's back on the road, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. In one sentence here, Paul travels 100 miles. <laughs> From Amphipolis through Apollonia onto Thessalonica. Apparently the apostle was in a hurry to get to Thessalonica. This Greek city was founded around 300 B.C. Thessalonica was named after the sister of Alexander the Great, and it was a, a huge commercial center. There was a famous Roman road called the Via Ignatia that ran across the Balkan Peninsula, connecting Europe with Asia. The trade route ran through the city of Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, the Via Ignatia was the main street of Thessalonica. Paul figured that if the gospel caught fire in Thessalonica, it would spread throughout the entire region. Well, he came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. In Romans chapter 11, Paul will call himself the apostle to the Gentiles, but he always went first to the Jews. Here he went into the synagogue and he reasoned from the scriptures. Paul went on explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And of course, you know that the term Christ or Christos is the Greek word for the Hebrew term Messiah, or anointed one, the king of Israel. Now, the Jewish rabbis in the Old Testament, they read certain passages that talked about the Messiah suffering, coming to suffer. Other passages talked about the Messiah coming to reign. And yet they had a perplexing time reconciling both scenarios to the same person. That's why some of the rabbis suggested that there were two messiahs. Messiah ben Joseph, or Messiah son of Joseph, would suffer as his predecessor Joseph did in Egypt. On the other hand, Messiah ben David, or the son of David, would reign as king over all Israel. Well, here Paul explains from the scriptures that there was only one messiah. That both prophecies, that he would suffer and that he would reign were fulfilled in the same person, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus suffered on the cross, but then he rose from the dead and he ascended to glory. And he will come again soon to rule over all nations. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas, but the Jews who were not persuaded becoming envious 
Notice they became envious of Paul. You know, some of these Jews didn't so much object to Paul on theological grounds as they were just jealous. That was their problem. You know, today, for the most part, Judaism has lost its missionary zeal. Today, Jews sort of have a live and let live attitude. But in the first century, the Jews of the diaspora or the dispersion, they eagerly tried to win Gentile converts. They were zealous. And to jealous Jews, Paul's persuasiveness was unwelcome competition. That's why they attacked him. And so they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. The Jews, jealous of Paul, they hired a group of thugs and vigilantes and they inflamed a mob and they stormed the house where Paul had been staying. But... When they did not find them, <laughs> Paul wasn't at home. Where he was, we don't know, but he wasn't there at the time. But they took who was there, and they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Now imagine Jason. He's sitting there minding his own business, kicking back in the lazy boy, watching the Braves on television, I'm sure. When a mob storms his house, they kick down his front door. They drag him through the streets of Thessalonica to City Hall. And notice what the mob is crying out. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Wow. You know, that had to be one of Paul's greatest compliments. For his enemies to say, these are the men who have turned the world upside down. How would you like for your friends to say that about you? If you haven't noticed, this world is wrong side up. It needs to get turned upside down. It's wrong side up. We live in a world where good is called evil and evil is called good. We live in a world that mocks the Savior and worships sin. We live in a world where people draw their breath from God then deny that He even exists. This world is wrong side up. That's why it needs to be turned topsy-turvy. We need to shake things up for Jesus. Rather than blend in, we need to live an opposite kind of life. May people say of us, we were those who turned our world upside down for Jesus Christ. Now in verse 7, the mob makes its accusations to the authorities. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. They're accused of political treason. You know, in reality, Jesus was king, but not over a political kingdom. He was king over a spiritual kingdom. The only coup d'etat that Christianity ever orchestrated was the takeover of our hearts. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In other words, they released them on bail. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. Paul slipped out of town under the cover of darkness. He and his entourage now traveled 60 miles west of Thessalonica, to the town of Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Again, Jew first, then the Greeks. And these were more fair-minded. Notice that. Or, or one translation puts it, more noble-minded. They were more objective in their thinking there in Berea than, in, than those in Thessalonica. In that they received the word with all readiness. And notice this. They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Here's what marked the people of Berea. They were into truth. They searched the scriptures. Hey, they wanted the truth even if it made them squirm. Even if it challenged their preconceived notions. You know, their question wasn't, do I like what I'm hearing? Does this sound cool? How will this benefit me? Is this what my former church taught? None of those questions went in their mind when they were hearing Paul teach. They only had one question. Is this biblical? How does this stack up with the scriptures? And we need to be Bereans. We need to check out all the teaching that we hear. Is what we're hearing true to God's word. You know, even well-meaning pastors make mistakes. I hope you check me out. 
You need to check out every word I say. You need to see if what I say stacks up with Scripture. Yes, I have a responsibility to be accurate, and I take it very seriously, but that responsibility goes both ways. If I'm in error, you're in danger. You have a responsibility too. You need to make sure that what anyone teaches is biblical. Verse 12, Therefore many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Boy, those Jews in Thessalonica, they were, they were particularly militant. They wanted to stop Paul, even to the point of hunting him down. They traveled all the way from Thessalonica to Berea to, to try to counter him. <laughs> These Jews were like underwear. They were always creeping up on Paul. Well, then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Now, apparently Paul was the flashpoint. He was the headliner. Get Paul out of town, and apparently Silas and Timothy can quietly continue the work of discipling and teaching the new believers. And so those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, it seems that the plan was for Paul to lay low for a few days until his buddies could catch up. But there was no such thing as lying low for Paul. Verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Athens, Greece perhaps the most famous city in all the ancient world. It was spectacular, really, culturally, architecturally, intellectually. Athens was home to the Olympic Games, the Acropolis, the colossal Parthenon. It was the birthplace of democracy and of Greek philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and a whole host of wise guys roamed the Areopagus, Mars Hill, there in Athens. At the time of Paul's visit, Athens was starting to be eclipsed by other cities. Rome was now the capital of the military, the military capital of the world. Alexandria and Egypt had sort of eclipsed Athens as the scientific and literary capital. Corinth was now the commercial hub, but Athens remained the intellectual and academic capital of the world. And I'm sure Paul thought the same that I did after dealing with a few of my college professors. He looked around and he thought, how can people so smart be so dumb? You ever had a run in with a college professor and thought that? As he looked around this beautiful city, renowned for its intellectual brilliance, he noticed that Athens was littered with countless temples and altars and idols and pagan shrines. In fact, Greek archaeologists estimate that there were over 3,000 shrines dedicated to various idols in the city of Athens. There were more idols in Athens than in all of Greece. In fact, there was a saying in the ancient world, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. Verse 17, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now notice this. Paul wasn't just content to share the gospel in the synagogue or in the house of worship, but he took it to the agora or the marketplace. And this is what we should be doing today. Not just speaking of God and studying God's word in a house of worship, but hopefully we should be taking God's word to the marketplace to our schools, to our businesses, to places of education, to places of politics. We need to be taking God's word into the marketplace of ideas, invading education and business and entertainment and politics. Paul certainly didn't sit on his hands while the people of Athens were dying and going to hell. Reminds me of D.L. Moody. One day he was walking down the street a man was moving in the opposite direction. When Moody asked him, he said, Are you a Christian? The grumpy man snarled back, Mind your own business. And that's when Moody answered, Sir, it is my business. 
And when will we realize the salvation of others is our business too? We've been called to share the gospel. We've been called to love people. We should never get used to the sound of footsteps marching to hell. Well, Paul, he he started to stir things up now in Athens. Verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Now, the Greek word translated babbler, it means seed picker. And it was a derogatory term. Where's this country bumpkin, this little seed picker? What's he doing here? It, It referred to a bum who would pick food out of the trash cans, a seed picker. The Athenian philosophers were mocking Paul. They were calling the gospel garbage. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now understand, American politics is a two-party system. There are Republicans and there are Democrats. Judaism was a two-party religion. Pharisees were the conservatives and Sadducees were the liberals. Well, likewise... Greek philosophy at the time had two parties, two schools of thought, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans were the materialists. They were the humanists. Their leader, a man named Epicurus, he lived between 341 and 270 B.C. He taught that the universe was shaped by chance, that man had no eternal soul, that death was the end of us. To the Epicurean, all that mattered was matter. His goal was to enjoy the here and now. Epicureans lived to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. I mean, they could have borrowed the motto from one of Jesus' parables when the foolish rich man cried out, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was Epicureanism. Live for the moment. Live for pleasure. The Stoics, on the other hand, They were the New Agers. They were the pantheists. Their leader was a man named Zeno. He lived around the same time as Epicurus. He believed that God is in everything and that everything is part of God. Sort of the Oprah motto. (laughs) Zeno taught that life was the spark of God in the spirit of man. The Stoics felt that nature and circumstance were controlled by fate. They believed what will be with be. So rather than shape life, rather than try to take control of your life, the Stoics' goal was to live in harmony with your surroundings. Just sort of accept the hand that you were dealt. The Stoics lived a disciplined and austere and solemn life. Emotion was their enemy. Obviously, they lived a futile, unhappy life as well. They ended up victims of their own circumstances. It's no surprise that the first two Stoic leaders committed suicide. Author Warren Wearsby sort of sums up Paul's tasks here in Athens. He says, the Epicurean said, enjoy life. And the Stoic said, endure life. But it remained for Paul to explain how they could enter into life through faith in God's risen Son. Verse 19. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. The word can be translated Ares Rock. The Romans called the place Mars Hill. It was an outcropping of rock west of the Acropolis where the Supreme Council of Athens met to examine religious and philosophical matters. Paul was taken to this council for inquiry, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were, with, who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. There were philosophers in Athens, and all they did was to sit around and entertain new theories and new thoughts. In Athens, Georgia, football is king. But in Athens, Greece, the most popular sport in town was philosophy. The big men on campus were in the philosophy department and on the debate club. The Athenians probably tailgated prior to a big debate. Imagine Larry Munson calling the play-by-play in the showdown with Paul. Well, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. 
For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Athens had thousands of idols. But just in case one had been forgotten, or just in case there was an unknown God, rather than offend him, they built him an altar. It just goes to show the paranoia produced by paganism and polytheism. You know, it's interesting. Architects in Athens built altars to this pantheon of gods. But the philosophers in Athens were largely agnostic. Plato had written, It is hard to investigate and to find the framer and the father of the universe. And if one did find him, it would be impossible to express him in terms which all could understand. Intellectuals acknowledged the necessity of a prime mover, a first cause, but they viewed him as aloof and distant, impossible to know. And this left a vacuum in the soul of the people. Paul is going to draw now on this hunger for the one true God. He's going to seek to fill their emptiness. And he uses the altar to the unknown God to proclaim to them the true God. Verse 23. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. I'm going to tell you who your unknown God is. God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. It's interesting, right above Mars Hill where Paul was speaking was the Parthenon. It was a massive temple built to the goddess Athena. It still stands there to this day. Yet Paul says that the real God, the true God, he needs no temple made with hands. Heaven and earth are his temple. He says, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. You know, these pagan idols, they depended on their priests to to offer them food and and to build them shelter. But the real God, he's self-existent. He needs nada. He needs nothing from us. We need everything from him. The true God is the creator and giver of life. You know, Paul here is making a contemporary argument. He's basically saying that there is a creator. There is an author of life. There is a giver of breath. We, weren't, we didn't just evolve by chance. We were created. Philosopher G.K. Chesterton, he said, Evolutionists seem to know everything about the missing link except the fact that it's missing. You know, the theory of evolution goes that given enough time, fish will turn into frogs, and then frogs will turn into birds, and then birds will turn into monkeys, and then monkeys will turn into humans. But if this were true, you would expect to find a fossil record littered with countless transitional forms, like half fish and hybrid humans. But the missing links are still missing. In fact, I once heard a guy say, besides, if evolution really worked, If we really adapted and evolved upwards, by now moms would have three arms. I mean, wouldn't you agree, mom? I mean, don't buy into the idea that a perfectly ordered universe rose out of chance and chaos. That's preposterous. Perfect design requires a designer. It's obvious to an unbiased mind that, as Paul said, God made the world and everything in it. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Notice this. God created human beings with distinction. Now, this is the problem with the global village concept, with the one world government idea. It's not biblical. God created nations and people groups. And he marked out their boundaries and their locations. In Genesis 10, you can read the table of nations that God established. In fact, a one world government will be a tool of the Antichrist, not a work of God. Verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God made us for himself. We're restless until we find God. He's saying God is not as far away as Epicurus taught you. Oh, he's high, all right, but he's also very nigh. And to prove his point, Paul quotes Epimenides, 
one of Athens' very own philosophers. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, God is everywhere. The true God wants us to know him. And right now, he's close to us, ready to reveal himself to us if we open our hearts. Paul continues, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. And here Paul quotes another Greek philosopher, Aratus. You see, Paul does what pastors have been doing ever since. He's identifying with his audience. He's drawing on some cultural references that the Greeks would understand and recognize and, and relate to in order to emphasize and teach them some biblical truth. He goes on and he explains, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Now when Paul says we're the offspring of God, he's not teaching that all men are you know, children of God in the sense that, every, that there's universal salvation for all people. He's simply saying here that our creator, that as our creator, we devi- derive our life from God. That we're his offspring in that he created us. Paul's actually using some reverse logic here. Since we're made in God's image, yes, we're supposed to reflect God, but also since we're made in God's image, you can get an idea of what God is like by looking at us. For example, I'm, I'm alive, I'm living, thus God will be a living God. I, I'm, I'm a person, thus God will be personal. I'm, I, you can know me, you can introduce yourself, to, I can introduce myself to you. Thus God is knowable. The Greeks said that God wasn't knowable, that he was way off aloof, that you could never know him, never understand. Paul is saying that's not true. He said we all are his offspring, we all bear his image. Therefore we can, we can infer some things about God by looking at us. We're living, we're personal, we're knowable. So is God. He's comparing the true God with the idols that they were accustomed to. You know, he's saying... You're more, since you're more than a chunk of metal or a chunk of stone, God is more than a chunk of metal or a chunk of stone. God is not an idol. God is living and personal and knowable. I've been called blockhead from time to time, but, but I'm alive. And so is the God who made me. That's the point. He's no idol. Now Paul starts to conclude in verse 30. He says, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Understand the Greeks, they were very proud of their history. They talked longingly of the golden age of Pericles, when Greek civilization had reached its pinnacle. Even today, we still marvel at Greek culture. Yet Paul called the hallowed history of the Greeks times of ignorance. Isn't that interesting? You see, the Greeks were unenlightened in the truth of God. What mattered most was what they were ignorant of. Paul is saying that the time to debate is over. It's now time to decide. God is calling all men everywhere to repent, he says. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. You know, the Athenians, they were judging Paul, but one day God will judge them. In resurrecting Jesus, God had ordained Jesus as Lord and judge of all. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It's been said, an agnostic is a person who says that he knows nothing about God, and when you agree with him, he becomes angry. Folks got mad at Paul when he told them the truth. They tried to laugh him off. We're told while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. It was the notion of the resurrection that stunned the Athenians. They needed to think this through. You see, the Greeks considered the human body to be evil. They they thought of the body as a prison for the soul. And according to Greek thought, when the body died, 
the soul was set free from its fleshly cage to fly back into the oblivion from which it came. The idea of a resurrection was appalling to them. Thus, when Paul suggested the resurrection, that God would actually raise up these bodies, it created a disruption in the conversation. It halted Paul's message. Some of them walked away to think this through. Notice the reactions here. Some of the Athenians taunted Paul. They mocked him. Some tarried. They wanted time to think. Some, though, took Paul up on the offer of salvation. Notice we're told. So Paul departed from them, among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now, it's probably not the response that Paul had experienced in other places, but there was a small group of converts here in Athens. Dionysus was apparently a council member. He's called an Areopagite. He was a leading philosopher who had come to Christ. That was exciting. Damaris was a female name. And since proper Greek ladies seldom entered into the male-dominated arena there on Mars Hill, some think that Damaris was a prostitute. Which is interesting. The two named converts here in Athens were a philosopher and a prostitute. Just goes to prove that God can save the down and out, and he can save the up and out. He can save them both. Chapter 18. Now after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. The city of Corinth was a port accessible to both the Adriatic and the Aegean seas. This meant that all north-south traffic passed through Corinth. This is why the city was known as the Bridge of Greece. Corinth was the, the, the region's central commercial center. Ancient Corinth had a population of about 200,000 people. But Corinth was primarily known for its unbridled wickedness, its immorality. Every vice known to man found a home in Corinth. In fact, whenever a Corinthian was portrayed in a Greek play, he was always depicted as the drunk. That was the Corinthian. To play the Corinthian meant to party hardy. A Corinthian girl was a synonym for a prostitute in the ancient world. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the moral and spiritual deterioration of a civilization that has divorced itself from God. But when he wrote Romans, he was living in Corinth. Apparently, the city of Corinth served as his inspiration. And at the heart of the city of Corinth was a temple dedicated to the Greek fertility goddess Aphrodite. They say that every night, a thousand temple priestesses flooded the streets and played the prostitute in the name of religion, in the name of Aphrodite. Corinth was truly the Las Vegas of its day. What went on in Corinth? Well, it didn't stay in Corinth. We're reading about it now in the scriptures. Corinth was a cesspool of immorality. It was a lewd, perverted city. And yet it turned out to be very fertile ground for the gospel. Verse 2. And Paul found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. Now the Roman historian, Suetonius, he dates the Jewish expulsion from Rome at 49 AD. He said that the result, he said that the expulsion of the Jews from Rome was the result of riots that were caused by a man, this was Suetonius' name for him, by the man named Christus. Christus. It's possible that the gospel had already made its way to Rome by 49 AD. And it was the preaching of Jesus as Christus, or as the Christ, that had caused this upheaval. Anyway, the emperor kicked the Jews out of Rome, and it was at this time that Aquila and Priscilla came south to Corinth. So, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation... They were tent makers. 
Now understand, Paul was bivocational. He was a pastor, but he supported himself with secular work. You know, all Jewish rabbis, they not only received theological training, but they also learned to trade. Thus, Paul had some skill in working with leather and in making tents. Monday through Friday, Paul was in the shop, but on Saturdays, he was in the synagogue. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Notice this. You you remember Paul's buddies? They had stayed behind. Back in Thessalonica, now they finally catch up. And evidently, their presence emboldened Paul. This is why Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. Don't underestimate the power of a Christian friend. You know, when we're with each other, we can encourage each other. We can embolden each other to share our faith. You know, we also know that Silas and Timothy arrived with some financial support from the Philippians. This may have encouraged Paul. He no longer had to work so hard with the tents. Maybe he could devote more energy to the ministry. Whatever it was, Paul felt some fresh wind in his sails when uh, Silas and Timothy showed up. But uh, But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And I love how Paul handles opposition. I mean, rather than get shook up, he always just shakes it off. He moves on to where people are ready to hear. You know, don't get hung up on those few people who don't want to hear the thing you want to share, that don't want to hear the truth of the gospel, when there are people right around the corner who are dying to hear what you have to say. Sometimes we get fixated on those who want to stop up their ears when there's people right around us who are ready to hear if we'll just shake it off and move on. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Notice this. Paul sets up shop right next to the competition. He moves right next door from the synagogue and sets up shop in order to preach to the Greeks. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. How cool is that? The leader of the synagogue, no less, was converted to Jesus. Verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, now it seems at Corinth, Paul's courage had waned. He'd been beaten. He'd been run out of every town he'd visited except Athens. And when Crispus was converted, the leader of the synagogue, he knew that the Jews would become desperate, and they would probably resort to violence. But Paul fortified him with two vitamins. Two vitamins. His presence and his promise. And did you know that these are the two vitamins that God uses to keep you strong in your faith? His presence and his promises. He's with us. And he makes promises to us to never leave us or forsake us, to empower us. You know, one count says that there are over 7,400 promises in the scriptures. You know what I suggest? That you grab a few and claim them for yourself. He gives to us his presence and his promises. And notice, too, what God tells Paul. He says, I have many people in this city. Now, this is an amazing statement, considering that Paul is just starting out his ministry in Corinth. God had many people in this city. At the time, they just didn't know that they were his people. You know, what an encouragement to remain faithful to witness. Did you know... That God has many people in your neighborhood. Well, where are they? No, God has many people in your neighborhood. Well, God has many people in your office. I don't know any Christians in my office. God has many people on your softball team. The problem is, they just don't know it yet. 
But God has already picked them out. God already knows them. They've been ordained before the foundation of the world. God considers them his own. He's just waiting for you to share the gospel with them. And he continued there in Corinth a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. For 18 months, Paul was faithful, just teaching them the Bible. And guys, this is how God grows churches even today. It's through the faithful teaching of God's word. You know, later Paul is going to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. He's going to write to these Corinthians. And he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Perhaps Paul was comparing his success in Corinth with his lackluster ministry in Athens. The mighty Athenians, they had laughed off the gospel while these lowly Corinthians had embraced the gospel. The men of Athens were too proud to admit their need, whereas the Corinthians had jumped at the opportunity to know God and to be forgiven. God had chosen them to confound the wise of the world, the foolish of Corinth. Verse 12 and when Gallio was counsel of Archaea, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. What Paul had feared came upon him. Apparently a new proconsul in Corinth caused the Jews to hope that they might persuade the Romans to outlaw Christianity. But their plan backfires. Notice what happens. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio, this, this new ruler, he said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to yourselves. For I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, apparently Crispus' replacement after he got converted. They took Sosthenes and they beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. He pretended not to see. Evidently, the Jews in Corinth had very few friends in town. So when the locals saw the indifference of their new ruler, they decided to teach the Jews a lesson. And so they roughed up Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Now this makes 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, very intriguing. For Paul says, as he opens his letter to the Corinthians, he says, Paul called to be an apostle and Sosthenes our brother. Notice that. Evidently, after getting beat up, Sosthenes became a believer. Apparently, it took a beating to convince him of his need for Jesus. You know, that's what it takes for a lot of folks. Maybe not a physical beating, but you have to get beat up financially. Or beat up professionally. Or beat up relationally or vocationally. Before you're willing to humble yourself and realize how much you need Jesus. Sometimes it takes a bruise or two. Perhaps Sosthenes was converted after his beating when Paul and Crispus came to minister to him. Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, Sosthenes had wanted them beaten. Instead, they're there caring for him, forgiving him and washing and bandaging his wounds. It was no doubt love that melted Sosthenes' hardened heart. To me, this is so cool. The synagogue can't keep a rabbi because they're all getting saved. And so Paul still remained a good while. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. He's going back home to Antioch. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. But he had his hair cut off at Sincrea, for he had taken a vow. Now again, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But he was always trying to win a hearing with the Jews. And this is what he does here. 
He takes a Jewish vow. He, he shaves off his hair, perhaps a Nazarite vow. But he takes this vow in hopes of creating a platform by which he can preach Jesus to the Jews. He's always thinking of the Jews. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, that is, Aquila and Priscilla. But he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the most important cities that Paul would visit. It was the heart of, in the heart of Asia Minor. It had a population of over 300,000 people. But Paul was in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And so his ministry in Ephesus will have to wait until his third missionary journey. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. It's been two years now since he and Silas had left. And I'm sure the believers in Antioch were overjoyed to see him. What a, what a reunion that was, to hear the reports of all that God had done. And, and the church at Antioch, to know that they had shared in Paul's ministry. They'd been praying for him. But no moss is going to grow under Paul's feet. He sets out again. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. And this begins... Paul's third missionary journey, his second was Silas. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, this was a North African, he was an eloquent man and he was mighty in the scriptures. This Apollos came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. In other words, Apollos was a Christian, he knew the basics of, of Christianity. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Though he knew only the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now Apollos knew the gospel. He knew the importance of repentance. But what he didn't understand was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He was eloquent, good speaker. He was knowledgeable. He knew the word. But Apollos lacked spiritual power. Apollos is like many Christians today. His experience with God wasn't inaccurate, it wasn't insincere. It was just incomplete. And I like how Aquila and Priscilla handle the situation. They hear him. It's obvious to them what he's missing. But they don't confront him. They don't call him out publicly. They don't embarrass him. They don't make, put him on the defensive. Well, they do. They just pull him aside. They take him to lunch one Sunday after church. And they just talk to him in a gentle way. And they just explain to him what he'd been missing. And I'm sure that... Before the conversation was over, they prayed with him that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 27, when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now notice, Apollos went from Ephesus to Corinth, whereas Paul had gone from Corinth to Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Paul speaks to the Corinthians and he says, Of Corinth, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. Paul went there first, he planted the seeds, Apollos then came afterwards, he helped water the seed, but God gave the increase. It's interesting, in Ephesus it was reversed. Because Apollos was the one who planted, Paul was the one who watered. But obviously God gave the increase. You know, sometimes we sow the seeds of the gospel. We plant the seeds in the hearts of the people we love. At other times, we water the seeds that someone else has planted. 
But always the seed sprouts as a result of the life-giving Holy Spirit. It's God who supplies the increase. To God be the glory. And that's where we'll pick it up next week in chapter 19. Now we're going to see in chapter 19, when Paul gets to Ephesus, we're going to see the results of Apollos' work there in Ephesus. Remember, Apollos wasn't inaccurate. Apollos wasn't insincere, but he was incomplete. And the knowledge of the believers that were under his teaching, those folks there in Ephesus, was also incomplete. They, they knew about repentance from sin. They knew about the gospel, but they didn't know about the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when Paul gets to Ephesus, he's going to, he's going to understand, he's going to see what's lacking, and he's going to lay hands on these believers. They're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're going to speak in tongues and prophesy as a result. And we're going to talk about that next, next Wednesday night. Okay? So be here or be square next Wednesday night. Father, thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'll bless us tonight as we meditate on these truths. Lord, I pray that you'll help us to hide your word in our heart, continue to learn, continue to grow. Lord, we, we don't want to be inaccurate. We don't want to be insincere, but we also don't want to be incomplete. We want all that you have for us. And I pray for us all, Lord, that we would be open to the work of the Holy Spirit, that we would seek your spirit, that we would not trust in our own efforts, but, Lord, that we would constantly be praying to be filled, to be overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Come tonight, Lord, and fill us with your Spirit. Embolden us, as you did, Paul, to, to reason and to explain and to, to go to the mat for the gospel. Give us boldness as well, Lord. And, Lord, when we get rejected, help us to, to not get shook up, but help us to shake it off, keep moving, keep going. There are people that are eager to hear. Lord, give us the boldness to speak. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Great.